So this morning, I want you to think of great battles or great events in, in history. When you think of these battles, either, you know, literal battles or battles in sports, what come to mind? Maybe David and Goliath, Ollie and Frazier, in the 70s, the Cowboys and the Steelers, in the 2000s, the Ravens and the Steelers could go on and on about all these great matchups, all these great battles that we might think of in our own context or even in past history. This morning, we'll be encountering one of the greatest battles of all time between Baal and Yahweh, the melee on the mountain. Let's read 1 Kings 18, 17 through 46. This is a long passage. I realize that, but it's chocked full of action. And, and so let's dive into God's word together. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. For you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. 
Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seths of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up on the top of, the, of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while, the heavens drew, grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is true. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, may we not only be transformed by your word, but conformed to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Pastor Alex helped us see that in the first part of chapter 18, we saw that because God is with us, we can obey. And he walked us through the four characters that show up in, showed up in that um, part of chapter 18 that show us either obedience or disobedience to God. Jezebel, Ahab, Obadiah, and Elijah. And we come to our text today following on that, actually, Pastor Alex actually even uh, uh, referenced verses 17 uh, through, through 19 and how Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. And as we come to our text today, we are kind of confronted with this question, is like, who or what brings trouble? 
Who or what brings trouble? And the overwhelming response to the text is not following the Lord. That what brings trouble. Not following the Lord is what brings trouble. And so we, we see in our text that we can follow the Lord because we know that He is God. We can follow Yahweh because we know that He is God. And so we can follow Yahweh knowing He is God because we see in our text first who really has brought trouble to Israel, who really is the true God, and then what our response should be. Who has brought trouble to Israel, right? Ahab accuses Elijah of being the troubler of Israel, and Elijah says, no, I'm not. You are. You and your family's commitment to Baal, you and your family's turning their back on the Lord God of Israel, this is why the rain has been withheld. God has withheld this rain to prove his power over your God, to prove that he is the one true God, that you, your response should be not accusing me of troubling Israel, but turning back to God. Is it Ahab or Elijah who is at fault? And Elijah suggests a contest to determine who benefits Israel and who troubles the land, who is in control, who is the troubler of Israel. This contest will decide who is God, what prophets tell the truth, and what leaders benefit or harm the people of God. And Ahab seems to like his odds, right? He agrees to the contest. He's like, let's do it. Let's get ready to rumble, right? You can almost hear Michael Buffer's famous introduction, let's get ready to rumble, right? That's what you hear in our text as we get ready for this great contest on Mount Carmel. This context indicates that the prophets of Baal also agree to this contest, that their God, this storm God, Baal, this God who is the God of fertility and rain and lightning, it should be an easy contest. No problem. We got this. And so, this contest not only is to see who the real troubler of Israel is, but ultimately, who is the true God. And Elijah, before the contest begins, challenges the people of Israel to stop limping or wavering between two opinions, to decide who is God and act in that decision. This word limping has the idea of hopping from branch to branch like a, like a bird might do. It's similar to an English idiom, sitting on the fence, meaning not making a decision or choice, right? He's going to the people and saying, 
Make a decision. Who will you serve? It echoes back to the words of Joshua to the people of Israel as they enter the promised land. Choose for this day whom you will serve. Right? And he even references that the people had been serving the idols of Egypt, the gods of Egypt. Who will you serve this day? The gods of your fathers. Isn't that an interesting reference that Joshua says that even through the life of the people of Israel, those who were called by God, there were still idols, there were still gods that they were serving even as they entered the promised land. Who will you serve, Elijah says. He calls for this definite commitment to follow God or to follow Baal. Don't be uncertain. Choose one. You can't have both. You can't serve two gods. As we read in the Gospel of Matthew earlier. Now remember that, as I said, Baal is the god of fertility, of rain, of new growth. And when winter came, he was thought to have gone asleep or even some, have, some thought that he might have even had died and gone to the netherworld during that season. So he would awaken or rise from the netherworld when the growing season began. And so in the case of a drought, Baal must have been asleep or maybe even dead And so the prophets of Baal try to wake him from sleep or death by shouting, by dancing or limping around the altar. Like those who limp between God and Yahweh, these priests limp around the altar to their God, trying to get his attention. And after they've done this for a while, Elijah begins to mock them, right? He mocks their attempts and tells them, hey, maybe you just need to shout louder, Maybe he'll hear you then, right? He, he, he might be deep in thought, and so he can't hear you. Or maybe he's on the toilet. Yeah, that, maybe, he's, maybe, he's on the, maybe he's doing both, deep in thought and on the toilet at the same time, right? Many people do their best thinking on the toilet, right? Um, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's sleeping. And obviously, they are unsuccessful to awaken Baal or to bring him back from the netherworld. In reality, the text is saying he's not real. He has no power. He has no ears. He cannot hear. And they were unsuccessful. And so now it's time for the oblation or the evening sacrifice, and Elijah calls the people to attention. Right, the evening sacrifice that would have been done in the temple, this is the time of day that this would have happened And Elijah calls the people to this sacrifice. And what's interesting is the text says that Elijah, quote, repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. This would seem to indicate that there had at one time been an altar to Yahweh, to the living true God at Mount Carmel. And he goes to that altar and rebuilds it, repairs it. He rebuilds or repairs the altar using 
12 stones, which, as the text says, should remind us of the 12 stones, as the 12 tribes of Jacob. Notice the text uses the word Jacob. The people of Israel, before they were known as Israel, the people of Jacob. 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Jacob. And not only should they remind us that there are 12 tribes of these people in this divided kingdom, but it should bring up something more than that. It should remind the people and us of the 12 stones that the people under Joshua's leadership carried out of the Jordan River and built a memorial to the Lord at Gilgal. And why did they do this? Joshua tells them and us in Joshua chapter 4, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Elijah takes 12 stones, which should have represented to those people, these are like the 12 stones that were carried out of the Jordan River and placed in the monument at Gilgal. And why are they there? So that when your children ask you, what do those stones mean? You don't forget. You remember what God has done. By placing those 12 stones to repair the altar of Yahweh, of the true God. He's reminding the people and us, this, this is what God has done in the past. And he is about ready to show himself to you one more time. These stones that remind us of who the true God is, the one that you are to fear or know forever. And like the people of Israel, we have those stones. We have a stone that was rolled away from the tomb. What does that stone mean? That our God is not dead like Baal, that he is alive. He does not slumber nor sleep. Why is that stone rolled away? So that when your children ask, you can tell them of the mighty work that God has done in Christ. More importantly, we have the stone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone, Jesus himself. He is the only God we need. He is the only God we follow. And notice Elijah's prayer. Show these people that you are the one true God. Remind these people that you are the covenant God who created this people, Israel, out of Jacob. that Elijah is himself God's true representative, not the prophets of Baal, not Ahab, 
and that God would turn the people's hearts back to him in repentance. Right? We see in Elijah's prayer concern for God's reputation, the validity of Elijah's calling and for the people's well-being. And when the rain comes, right, it's not just that God sends fire down upon the altar, right? As, as amazing as that is, as awesome as that is, as much as it shows and proves that Yahweh is the true God, the one who actually answers prayers and actually is the one who has power over nature and the elements of fire and brings down and burns up everything on the altar, When the rains come, the Lord's victory is complete. Right? Because if it had just kind of happened, right? If, if the rains had just kind of come back, anybody could have said, well, you know, they were, the prophets of Baal were praying for rain. Elijah was praying for rain. Who, who knows? You know, it could have been either God. But God shows his power in sending fire to consume the altar. And he brings the rain immediately following. You see, the victory of God is complete. God sustains and protects his prophets while Baal lets his die. Yahweh feeds the orphans and the widows and raises the dead while Baal lets the needy, and the suffer, needy suffer and die. Yahweh can send fire from heaven and he can send rain from heaven. But Baal cannot respond to the most simple requests of his ardent worshipers. A God like Baal is no God at all. A God like Yahweh is the God of all. Rain is not just rain. It is the evidence of God's absolute sovereignty over nature and human affairs, his absolute sovereignty over false gods and idols. So God is the true God. Yahweh is the true God. And what is our response? Well, the people respond along with Elijah. First, the people fall in worship, right? They fall on their faces. The people saw, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. They worship the one true God. And then Elijah says, seize the prophets let no one escape. They are put to death. They are put to death in accordance of the law given to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, where false prophets and false dreamers of dreams are to be put to death. This may seem harsh, but God gives us a reason for why He has commanded this, because they have taught rebellion against the Lord your God. Right, rebellion against God deserves death. The Bible is clear that we all have rebelled against God. We all deserve death. 
And yet God in his grace and his mercy has provided another who is put to death in our place, Jesus, our Savior. The one who did not teach rebellion against God, but lived perfectly in harmony with God and his neighbor. And yet he was put to death for our rebellion. The acknowledgement of the true God is that we should worship. That is our only response. A life of worship. All that we do is to reflect the glory and majesty and beauty and grace and mercy of our God. And as Christians, not only should we worship, but we not put, not put others to death, but we should put our idolatry to death. Right? We should view idolatry as no less sinful as Elijah God's prophet did as God himself does. But we're reminded by the apostles that judgment is reserved for Jesus, the one who is judged in our place and has all power and authority to destroy his enemies. It is his judgment that will come. We are called to repent, to turn to God, to slay the idols in our lives, to put them to death, to make sure that they are not receiving our worship What are the idols in our lives? Jesus, in our text earlier, said that one of those idols is money. He didn't mix, mince words straight up. One of our idols is money. Now, several weeks ago, when he reminded me that there are many idols that are, many gods that are still worshiped in our world. This is not something that just was, you know, in this time, but there are those who continue to worship other gods, other idols. And we should be driven to proclaim the true and living God to them. But notice that our text Notice that what we have been studying is in the context of the people of God. It's not about the idols out there. It's not about what other people worship or what they worship or who they worship. It is about what you and I, the people of God, worship. What other gods what idols do we worship that must be put to death? Is it money? As Jesus often said, it was a major idol for us. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve two gods. Is it politics? You know, this, our call to worship this morning reminded us that it is not in 
power of the king. It is not in the war horse. It is not in those things that we are, find rescue and hope. And yet, unfortunately, I think many of us can find that as our hope, as our love. Are they certain, is it certain relationships in our life that may be good but have become fully who we desire to be with, to be? Have we made that person or that group of people or however we define those relationships, we made those central in our lives. It's education, power. I mean, it could go on and on and on. What in our hearts needs to be put to death. So that we might repent and turn to God in full and devoted worship. Brothers and sisters, we we know that Yahweh, that the Lord is God by all that he has done. He has shown himself in the pages of history, on the pages of scripture, in our own lives. We know that Yahweh is God. He is the one true God. And our response is repentance, to slay our idols and return in worship to the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you are indeed our God. There is no other. There are no others. And yet, Lord, we too often sit on the fence, hop from branch to branch, limp back and forth, By the power of your spirit, Lord God, may you help us to choose this day who we will serve. We thank you for the work of Jesus Christ, the stone that we look to the one that we know has conquered the grave. And all our hopes are in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.